This episode is brought to you by the 35th Annual Meeting of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, working together for the global advancement of safe and healthy pregnancies. To find out more and register online, go to www.smfm.org. You're listening to the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Hosted by Dr. Bill Goodnight and Dr. Chris Robinson, each month we take an in-depth look at a paper published in the American Journal of Perinatology. Welcome to another edition of the American Journal of Perinatology podcast series. Today, as a special addition to our podcast series, we are highlighting some of the top and most interesting presentations from day one of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, the pregnancy meeting in San Diego, California. Chris Robinson and I, Bill Goodnight, will be interviewing key speakers from today's oral presentations. It is my pleasure to speak with Dr. George Sade, who had the oral plenary session one first abstract presentation at today's Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine scientific session of the annual meeting. Dr. Sade presented on the fetal ECG analysis of the ST segment as an adjunct to intrapartum fetal heart rate monitoring, a randomized clinical trial. Dr. Sade, congratulations on your presentation and thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you, Bill. For our audience, what was the primary question or clinical question that you had when you initiated this study? The primary question was to see if the fetal, if we can use the fetal EKG in addition or as an adjunct to our usual fetal heart rate monitoring to improve outcomes for the baby and to decrease cesarean deliveries. Are there some limitations to conventional fetal testing during labor that you were trying to address? Well, we have known for a while that conventional fetal heart rate uh, monitoring may not uh, improve outcomes and actually may increase operative deliveries and cesarean deliveries. Uh, We also know that conventional fetal heart rate monitoring uh, has a lot of variability in, uh, in interpretation. So we were hoping that the fetal EKG monitoring could address some of these concerns and limitations. Can you briefly describe the components of fetal EKG monitoring as it applies to this STAN trial? Yes, well, the first thing is the fetal EKG monitoring or ECG monitoring. The fetal ECG monitoring requires uh, application of a scalp electrode. So the membranes have to be ruptured and the head has to be low enough to put the scalp electrode. Then with that scalp electrode is attached to a a monitor with a computer that analyzes the signal and looks at the T wave and the ST segment of that signal. So it's somewhat similar to a stress test that adults may do to screen for cardiac disease. And then during labor, if the computer detects that there are changes of concern, then the monitor will display an alert that there is a STAN event or an ST event is called. And then based on that type of alert and how the fetal heart rate is at the time of the alert, you categorize it into one of three categories. And then in the middle category, the indeterminate category, then you use the information from the STAN to manage the patient. And sometimes the management could be wait and see if it changes. Sometimes the management could be resuscitation of the, of the baby. Sometimes the management could be expediting delivery. What was the primary finding of the study? The primary finding of the study actually was somewhat 
part of a disappointment for us because it did not improve outcomes. So the primary outcome for the study was a composite, was a, a combination of outcomes for uh, neonatal outcomes that included neurologic damage, acidosis, death, ventilation, etc. And that primary outcome was not decreased in those that had the fetal ECG monitoring. The other outcome of the study we were looking at is whether it decreases operative deliveries, including cesarean, forceps, vacuum, and it did not decrease the operative deliveries. Where do these findings fit in with the current known body of study on intrapartum fetal monitoring or stand technology? Well, we were surprised because uh, studies outside the United States were encouraging and showed some decrease in uh, the adverse outcomes in some studies. Other studies showed uh, decrease in interventions and mostly was fetal scalp sampling, fetal blood sampling, which is performed in Europe but not in the United States. So at this stage, we see that there are differences in practice patterns and management between the United States and Europe. And so far, we cannot see how stand monitoring in the United States could fit in within the practice pattern and managements that we have in the United States. If something changes in these practice patterns, then we may have to reevaluate our conclusion. What would you describe are the clinical or research implications of the findings presented today? I think there are quite a bit of research or, or I would say some of my thoughts about this experience that we went through. Well, first of all is a lot of our studies that look at outcome of the baby and improving outcome of the baby uh, during labor are going to require large number of patients, very large sample size. I mean, we had 11,000 and we didn't find a difference. So these are not studies for the faint of heart. These are studies that are very complex that require training, monitoring, and retraining, large sample sizes, data coordination like you've never seen. So my thoughts after coming out with this trial is I don't know how we're going to do future trials in this field unless we get a lot more funding and support to do these trials. Because they are so important, they affect millions of women in the United States. They affect the outcomes of millions of babies. We're all concerned about the cesarean delivery rates going up and up. If we are going to do anything in this field, we have to find more support, more funding to do these large trials. Otherwise, nothing is going to change. So that's kind of a philosophical outlook at my experience through this trial. Congratulations again on an excellent presentation this morning and completion of, as you describe, and I would agree, a monumental study um, that required a lot of work and lots of time and great collaborators. Thank you for this interview and congratulations on your successful podcast. <laughs> Thank you. We have Kelly Yamasoto joining us to discuss her poster, Episiotomy, Who Does Them and Does It Help? We want to thank you for joining us today for a brief discussion of your work being presented here at the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine. I wanted to start with, why did you decide to perform this study? What was the motivation that you had to put this idea together and then bring it to the meeting this year? 
Well, thank you so much for the opportunity to talk about our study. Restrictive episiotomy use has been suggested by ACOG 2006, I think is when those guidelines came out, and largely that was in response to findings of increased uh, maternal injury, third and fourth degree lacerations in particular, with routine episiotomy use compared to restrictive use. And so now that it's been a few years since those guidelines have come out, we wanted to re-examine episiotomy use, not only the associations between uh, maternal neonatal injury and episiotomy, but also to kind of explore more about which providers are performing episiotomy in current practice. Thank you very much for that introduction. I think that we also found this to be a very interesting presentation because it is a very large number of patients that you were able to capture to really capture the essence and to understand the associations that may be found in this case. So I was wondering if you would share with us the most important findings from your study that you believe that readers need to understand. Over our cohort, which is approximately uh, 26,000 mothers, overall episiotomy rate of about 6.4%. And we did find a persistent association between episiotomy use and maternal injury, which included third and fourth degree lacerations. And this was after adjusting for multiple possible confounding factors, including operative vaginal delivery and birth weight. And then interestingly, we also found association between a higher risk for neonatal injury and episiotomy performance and these neonatal injuries were identified by ICD-9 codes, a wide variety of codes, including gallop laceration, um, cephalohematoma, facial bruising, and suspect that it probably reflects the increasing complexity, I think, of those clinical scenarios um, in which episiotomy is performed. And then finally, we looked at episiotomy rates by provider years in practice and uh, found statistically significant increase in episiotomies performed by physicians who had been out of practice longer. That's very interesting. What would you suggest is the take-home message from this work? Well, I think this just goes to emphasize that even in current practice with current episiotomy use, restrictive use, there still is a higher risk of maternal injury, perhaps neonatal injury, which um, we'll explore more, and then increasing rates of episiotomy with uh, increasing provider years of practice. And as well, there's no association between episiotomy performance and cesarean section rates by individual provider. Thank you very much for sharing that insight with us today, and we look forward to seeing more in the future. Thank you so much. And we're joined by Melissa Rosenstein and Malini Nadigal to discuss their abstract, The Effect of Expanded Midwifery and Hospitalist Services on Primary Cesarean Delivery Rates. This is abstract number eight from this morning's session. I want to thank you all for joining us. I'd like to start with the question as to why did you decide that this was an important trial to conduct? And what were your motivations behind putting this together and making it here today to present before the entire audience of the Society of Internal Fetal Medicine? Thank you. We, in our hospital, prior to the system change that we implemented, had two very different models of labor and delivery care. And what we had noted was that there were very dramatically different cesarean rates with a much higher rate of 
primary cesarean sections in the traditional private practice model and a lower rate in a model of midwifery physician collaborative care. Knowing that there is a lot of attention these days for good reason on trying to lower the cesarean rates, we were very curious as to what would happen when we took that group of women who had previously been managed under a traditional private practice model and exposed them to this new type of labor and delivery management. The importance was just that. We know that traditional private practice model is still the predominant model of labor and delivery care in the United States and that people are trying to understand if there could be a model associated with lower C-section rates. Thank you very much for the introduction. I now want to ask you, what do you feel are the most important findings of your study that you would like to share with the readership and listenership of the American Journal of Perinatology? As part of our analysis, we performed something called an interrupted time series analysis, which is a way of looking at changes over time before and after an intervention and is very useful in this kind of an observational study where rates are changing over time and you want to evaluate the effect of the actual intervention. And what we were able to show was that cesarean delivery rates before the change were increasing at a slow but steady rate. And then after the implementation of the expansion of the midwifery and hospitalist services to Together, we noticed an immediate decrease in cesarean delivery rates. And then even more interestingly, every year for the three years after the implementation, we saw a continued decrease in the rates each year. That is very interesting. We're also joined by one of the hospital physicians who was able to make it for our discussion today. And I'd like to ask you, from the standpoint of the challenge of introducing a new model into a hospital system and then wanting to measure what are the effects of this new model, what did you find were the challenges that you faced and and how did you overcome those in making this a possibility and also at the same time being able to study in a very quantitative manner what the outcomes were going to be? Thank you. My name is Hector Streeter. I'm the uh, medical director of the OBGYN hospital at Marina General Hospital where this study was performed. And as the medical director of the program, I see these challenges every single day. What happened in 2011 when Dr. Nijigal and her collaborators introduced this new system of delivering obstetrical care, they realized the challenges were significant. But over time, they have really put those challenges at rest, meaning that the private physicians that were incorporated to the in-hospital care of their patients, plus the count many patients realized that was the model they were comfortable in taking care of because they had set hours. They knew that they were going to be in the office when they had to be in the office, not running from the office to the hospital and back and forth to deliver their patients. And that certainly has contributed to the amazing statistics that Dr. Rustinson had shown to us this morning. I can tell you through the course of the last three and a half years, the cohesiveness of the team remains exactly the same as when Dr. Nijigal started the program three and a half years ago. The challenges remain. However, those challenges are really overcome by the significant contribution that midwifery care has done to our program. And it was alluded this morning that now a significant number of the private patients are indeed now delivered by midwives, and that is significant. So the message is clear that in the low-risk obstetrical population and a setting of an OB hospitals program, midwifery care in collaboration with obstetricians is the future of obstetrical care, in my opinion. I just want to follow that up with a brief question which is how do you see in the future being able to segregate out the effects of a laborist model versus a midwifery model? 
Yeah, I think in our system, what would be wonderful for a future study would be to understand which patients are opting for midwifery. There is a segment of our population that is given the option of midwifery care versus physician care. Understanding who's opting for midwifery versus physician care and then seeing the differences would help. Unfortunately, we only have we only had one opportunity to study the change that we did, and we don't have that data now. But clearly, further studies in the future, looking more closely at that would be helpful. I also just want to add about the challenges that were associated with rolling out this program. I think that the biggest challenge that we faced at the time was really a cultural one. So the concept of private practice physicians moving into the role of laborists, number one, and number two, private practice physicians for the first time collaborating with midwives. There was significant concern around this uh, leading up to the time of the institution of the new program. We actually have studied this as well, which is not published at this time, but we studied the attitudes of the providers and the midwives as we approached this change. And it was clear that there was anxiety around how this would play out. We also studied their attitudes two years after the change. And what we found was the providers themselves were very satisfied. So I think another significant thing to add here is that this type of practice change, along with decreasing cesarean rates, actually seems to be very well accepted by the providers that are involved. I want to thank you very much for sharing that with us. I think it's very helpful that we have three perspectives coming to the table to really present the backdrop of this study and, and really um, allow our listeners and readers to understand different perspectives of how this was implemented. I want to close with the take-home message. So in other words, what is the take-home that other practices who might be considering this type of model, what are the challenges, what are the things that they should take home from your data that would potentially allow them to suggest to their physician staff that this is a workable and successful type model that can improve maternal and fetal outcomes. So this study shows that changing staffing patterns with the same clinicians that are already working in the hospital, just changing the way that labor and delivery care is organized, is able to decrease cesarean rates. And I should have also mentioned it also increased VBAC rates, vaginal birth after cesarean rates also went up dramatically and continue to go up every year after this implementation. And so this is, again, I think a hospital that has midwives or is considering expanding their midwifery program and changing the way that doctors take call on labor and delivery and incorporating this in a collaborative practice model can actually decrease the cesarean delivery rate. So I want to thank you for taking the time out to spend time with us today. I want to congratulate you on not only making a very positive change in maternal and fetal well-being, but at the same time taking the initiative to study that change and so that you could come and present this because I think this does serve as a model that can be very helpful for other practices that may be considering this type of problem in their own community. A method, as you've shared with us, to potentially increase the VBAC rate, providers being satisfied after the integration, and then most importantly, the mothers and infants that benefit from this type of intervention. Thank you very much for joining us today. That was the American Journal of Perinatology podcast. Thank you for listening. To find out more and to read this month's highlighted paper, go to www.tima.com forward slash AJP or check out our Facebook page at facebook.com AMJ Perinatology. If you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on iTunes and join us next month when we will discuss another paper from the pages of the American Journal of Perinatology.
This episode was brought to you by the 35th Annual Meeting of the Society for Maternal Fetal Medicine, working together for the global advancement of safe and healthy pregnancies. To find out more and register online, go to www.smfm.org.